Um, I, my name is Dan. If you're new to Crossroads, welcome. Um, and at this time in the service, I'd like to open up the Bible with you to Mark chapter 12. As a community, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark about this time last year. Take a couple detours along the way, um, but um, I'd like to, yeah, just welcome you into this. And I just always like to reiterate that when we study the Bible together, it's not because um, this is a class. I'm not a professor. I just, um, I like to say we just open up our hearts to the Bible, uh, to God's Word, to start to form us. It, it takes it from being a class to being a practice. Something that we practice together is reading the scriptures out loud and actually uh, ta- asking hard questions of ourselves um, and see w- what the Lord would have for us as we are always trying to look more and more uh, like Jesus in our lives. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, um, I'd like to start reading in Mark chapter 12 at verse 13. Mark 12, verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus in order to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach in a way of God in accordance with the truth. Here's our question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's. And they were amazed at him. Amen. You may be seated. So I thought through some thoughts and challenges to share with you regarding uh, this short but well-known story. And I'd like to begin at the end. And they were amazed at him. <laughs> Any, uh, anybody who's been studying the Gospels knows that this reaction is, is fairly common, but, it's real, but not in the last life, like week of Jesus' life. I mean, this, this is just to me, kind of shocking to read that line. Uh, The last time that these two groups uh, were pitted together against Jesus, they were trying to kill, or at least conspiring to kill him. Does anybody hear that weird sound, or is it just me? You don't hear it? Sort of hears like a, okay, whatever. (laughs) What's that? Yeah? Everybody can? Is anybody in, in here that can help me? James, I'll just switch to the, this one. James, can you turn this one on for me?
I guess on one level, it's just encouraging to know that this is a political debate and that, that people can walk away from it and not be like totally mad. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've experienced in your life or not. Um, how can I get to a place today where I'm interacting with this, what Jesus responds to in a way that I walk away feeling amazed? That I feel inspired, in a, like encouraged to actually uh, to do what he said or, or wrestle with it at least. What is it about what he said to them that caused them to uh, be amazed? So let me just be clear to show you just what his response is actually uh, making a parallel to. I brought a picture of the coin that he's looking at. This is the coin that some people call the, um, the uh, tribute penny or the denarius. There's various versions of this throughout uh, different Caesars and different locations, but they all are relatively the same. This is a picture of Tiberius Caesar, uh, the big head there on the left. And it says, Caesar, the divine son. Which would have been kind of awkward for Jesus to read that, but whatever. He didn't, he didn't make a scene about it. And then the, um, the, the other side would have been his mom there. And it's uh, Livia, Livia. And she has uh, Pontiff Maxim. You can, you can even read that. High priest. The high priest on the back. So... Um, he then says, what, whose image is on this coin? And they say Caesar's. So he says, give to Caesar that which bears his image. And the implication following is, give to God that who bears the image of God. Give to God that which is God's. And so I, I want to just sort of explore a little bit of that implication. What would focusing on the image of God do for us? I mean, what does it mean to be in the image of God? What, uh, how does that work? Is it something that's just generic and arbitrary, or is it something that's more specific? And, um, and how do we, and how does in, interacting with being an image bearer of God cause us to reorder certain things uh, that, are, that we've become debating about or, become, or that have taken a higher place in our hearts and minds than they should have? Do you know that being an image bearer of God is something fundamental to your identity as a human being? The being an image bearer means that I, we put God on display with how we live our lives, with, with the way that we act. This is built into the DNA of what it means to be a human being. And so the more that you live into that, the more you become who you were always destined to be. So let's get back into the story with that in mind. Image bearers. As you read verse uh, 13 here, there is a they. The second word, later, they. This is the first uh, character of the story, the they. And who is it? These are the people that Jesus has been interacting with throughout chapter 12. Uh, the chief priests and the Torah teachers. Um, another word for this would be the Sanhedrin. People who are a part of this uh, tribunal council of, of high power uh, socially and religiously. They are in charge of uh, 
keeping people in religious order. They have probably the most influence in their, their um, city and in that country as, as much as they could. These are very scary people, and in a sense, they become scary because they are using their powers in, in a way that has been oppressive or that would reflect worldly patterns and values. This is a big challenge in this chapter. Um, Jesus is interacting with them, even though the story that we read last week, if you were here, the parable of the vineyard, it describes a group of people who have been entrusted with a certain work to tend a garden or a vineyard. Some space has been given to them uh, to become fruitful. But this has become a, cha- a place where the vineyard ten- tenants have started to take over and operate the vineyard in a way that would benefit themselves. They start to do things that would benefit themselves, and anybody that would come to challenge them, they run them out, or they kill them. As you can see in verse 12, (laughs) there was no surprise. I mean, normally when Jesus tells a parable, people are a little confused as to what it means. Well, actually, this one, they say, uh, they knew exactly who he was talking about. The chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken a parable against him. This had been kind of a reoccurring thing in this week because when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, he saw that space, that garden and that place that was meant to be a place of where people interact with God, a fruitful space of developing a relationship with God had become something totally different. He walks into the Temple Mount, this 33 square acre space, uh, and in the area specifically where people who are outsiders were meant to come in and, and interact with people who are close to God and pray and, and learn about God had become a place of business. And the business wasn't anything to really uh, brag about either because that became even a corrupted version uh, of what they were going for. Like they were dealing sacrifices and if you brought your sacrifice to the temple and it wasn't acceptable, they can just uh, deny it and force you to purchase one of their, the premium sacrifice or whatever, right? And like they were the ones who were kind of calling the shots on all of that. And so of course... One thing leads to another, and you start to see corruption um, in, in the temple courts, oppression that's happening there. People are being excluded. People are, it's being difficult. It's difficult for people to come near to God. This is the opposite of what that space was meant to be. Jesus is infuriated by this, and so then he's, you know the story? He starts turning over tables, running uh, uh, the business out uh, the doors, trying to make this space uh, renovated back to the, to the way it was supposed to be. This is a very offensive critique. And in, a, in another picture, Jesus goes outside and sees this tree that has been withered and is fruitless and makes the connection that this is a picture of what the temple leadership actually looks like, this withered fig tree. And as I interact with this chapter over the last few months, um, it's easy to just sort of say, like, those guys are crazy. That would never be me or anything. And I, and I don't know. The more I think about it, though, the more it's just easy to sort of fall in line with what this group is doing or, or be tempted by, it, at least. I mean, I don't view myself in any way as 
a leader naturally. I just don't, when I look in the mirror, <laughs> it's not what I see. Um, but I know that I'm situated in a culture of leadership, right? Like, a lot of what I just see in, in, it's like one out of every five podcasts or books or whatever. It's, it's all about to be a better leader. It, it doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. We, we have a, a tone in our culture that talks about leadership and every little thing is how to be a better leader. And it's just really attractive, um, in, 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 at least in my view, it's something that's selling. And if that's true, think of also the fact that we are in sort of like a Christian bubble here, and, and, and especially in this church or in this city, and add those two things together, and it's not that different than the, the leadership that Jesus is talking about, potentially. People who have re- leadership roles and who are uh, leading on behalf of God, or at least brokering that in some way, and now we're, we're able to see the same temptations. Are we fruitful? Is what we're doing fruitful? Is what we're doing or, or how we interact with people on behalf of God in, in our world providing space for outsiders to come in? Or, or are we turning it into something that's mainly to benefit ourselves, right? And then all of a sudden, these questions start to really become challenging. Because if you look at this story, Unfortunately, the people who are critiqued by Jesus here, they don't stop and say, you know what, you're right. As much as a a reader of this, you you maybe would have thought maybe they would. It's Jesus, right? Like he's he's compelling them. and, And what ends up happening is they decide we are incompatible. And one of us has to go. So they start to conspire against Jesus, but they know that most of the crowd and the people that are uh, there are kind of uh, siding with Jesus, or at least they're leaning in that direction, uh, hoping that he's going to be for them what they want. And so that puts them in an awkward minority position. So they have to divide the crowd against Jesus, which is where the next two groups come into play. It should be shocking to see these two names next to each other, the Pharisee and the Herodian. If you're unfamiliar with who these groups are or what the philosophy of thought is behind there, let me just explain. To be a Pharisee, this is a religious political view of the time of Christ um, that is deeply, deeply committed to living out a life that's consistent with the scripture. Um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, the Pharisee is one of the only sects of ancient Judaism that actually lasted beyond um, the great revolts uh, to come. So even to this day, this would be the strain of Judaism that ended up lasting past Hadrian when uh, practicing Judaism was outlawed. And so you can see some of that stuff. If you see like a practicing Jew now that is like looking like they're old, like old-fashioned or like ancient garments and stuff like that, right? This is something that could give you a good picture of who these people are. Or watch The Chosen, Um, the ones in the black robes and all that. And so this group of people are actually deeply, deeply passionate and committed to living a life that's consistent with God. The only problem is, is they're living in a time where they're their land has been infected by people who they think are offensive to God. Even having any type of Roman culture 
existing in their land, they think this is sinful. It's immoral. They're not even, they won't touch the money. They won't look at that coin. That has a graven image on it. That's a sin. We can't do, you know, and so even to pay with that coin would be something that was offensive to them. Uh, furthermore, this is the same group of people that created the denomination or the branch, uh, uh, the violent branch uh, that you might have heard of called the zealot. This was the, the, the trajectory of some of the Pharisees' thought process, which is that it, we would be honoring to God if we took, if we took matters into, uh, uh, into our hands in a violent way to produce what God would want in this world. And so they used terror and fear in order to try and move the needle a little bit on um, keeping their place and space sacred and set apart. To be cut off is what the Hebrew word for Pharisee means, to be cut, separated. The Herodian is a little bit of a different story. Right in the name, uh, is, it means follower of Herod. Now, if you don't know who Herod is, there's a little bit uh, of confusion here because uh, throughout the Gospels, there are multiple people with the title or name Herod. The only Herod that you really need to, to, to consider in this regard is what, who we call Herod the Great. <laughs> One of the greatest figures of the second, second Temple era is Herod the Great. To this day, in just secular like archaeology and architecture, he's still making people scratch their heads. He was able to take such small resources and turn Israel, the land of Israel, into this monumentous uh, place of economic growth. Herod wanted Israel to be on the map for Rome, for Roman life. So a lot of the development that looks Roman in the nation of Israel was, was directly related to Herod. I mean, he created this town, Caesarea, right by the Mediterranean Sea. You could see it as you're sailing by. There's no harbor in Israel. Not, not, not. Herod actually made a harbor where there was no harbor somehow. Out into the sea, he put a palace on the water. So it looks like he is just controlling this whole, he's floating right there. Who is this guy? It's amazing. He had a colise, or a hip there, and he had um, a, a theater there. You move into Israel, and you see the city, Jerusalem, from miles away because of the temple and the temple mount, stories and stories high, with this brilliant white limestone polished as... <laughs> We don't have marble in Israel, but we'll make it look like we do. And so they, they had this huge, just awesome sight. I mean, you could see that in some of the stories with the disciples when they go to Jerusalem. Look at these towering structures. Uh, this is so amazing. And you could go on and on about Herod the Great. He's putting Olympic-sized swimming pools in the middle of the desert. And it, it, it's just these magnificent displays of of in some ways, just comfort and luxury. And if you're a Herodian, you're thinking, this guy is bringing jobs. He's bringing economic, he's bringing trade by sea, by land. He's bringing taxes, stuff that we're, we're all benefiting from. What's so bad about having this type of, look at, I mean, we look way better than we were before. We're in a good place with, uh, with the world now. And so their thinking is that this is actually more good than it is bad. 
And so if you ask the Herodian, should we pay the tax? Or if you ask the Pharisees, should we pay the tax? You're going to get diametrically opposite opinions. And sometimes this is actually going to develop into something ugly and violent. The imperial tax isn't just something that just that nobody talked about. This is actually a very important topic in their day. Um, because when Herod the Great died, then the, the, the nation or the, the Empire of Rome had to sort of figure out um, how do we revamp a little bit of our relationship with Palestine? So they started to, instead of just uh, uh, anointing, instead of making the next son the king, they decided to make governors, if you will, of certain areas and make Israel a full-blown Roman province. This is boring. Am I boring everybody right now? Okay, well, I'm getting to the point. I'm getting to the point. Here's what happens. We had to revamp the tax structure as well. For, well, now... And this is frustrating because now the people who live there don't get um, a blue passport. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get just given citizenship uh, of Rome. That, that's something you actually have to pay for and work for. But they get the taxes. And, and so when this rolled out, uh, you might remember from our uh, season of last month, Quirinius had to actually create a census to make everybody go to their hometown to be counted so they can figure out how to budget for this. And then, and then there was um, great opposition to this and riots started to break out. Uh, one of Herod's sons had to deal with a riot uh, pretty shortly after this tax rolled out on the Temple Mount. This is where 3,000 people protested this tax, and that protest turned into a riot, and that riot turned into a massacre. Because Rome now is in charge of this province, and they have sent thousands of troops to patrol and police it. And these people were viewed as opposing the Roman authority. And now you have to see a little bit of the bloodshed that started. Now, that's not where it ended, but that's even the, the first protest of this. If you were some sort of a zealot leader, this would have been one of the biggest campaign ads that you could put out there. We're against the tax, the imperial tax. We're not going to pay it anymore. Judas the Galilean that you probably remember reading about in Acts chapter 5, uh, this was one of the things that he was uh, known for advocating against. So this is where Jesus is, is being placed in the center of this debate. Should we pay it or should we not? Because this is the trap. If he was going to say to pay it, then they could accuse him as being somebody who is against Roman rule, and that would be illegal, and now he would be somebody that they could uh, justify arresting. But if he says to pay it, then he is shown as somebody that isn't really strong and isn't for the people of Israel, and he could uh, then be seen as somebody that's not really worth following. But, it, but he, even though he says don't pay, or to pay the tax, he says to pay the tax, it doesn't really matter. Because this is actually one of the things that they use against him in his trial anyways. You remember in Luke 23, 23 verse 2, when Pilate asks, what's the crime? What do they say? He's telling people not to pay the tax. <laughs> it's not true. They don't care. They're just going to use this anyway. I mean, this is a big, big moment. Why are you trying to trap me? 
Knowing their hypocrisy, he looks at them and says, why are you trying to trap me? I mean, I guess you could say here, it would be one thing if they had an honest question that they were trying to ask him. And all week, I've just been sort of sitting in this, like, what is hypocritical? What does that mean? How, how, how was it, why is he calling them out for trapping him? And I just keep repeating that. Why are you trying to trap me? The hypocrisy is a really big deal to Jesus. What's hypocritical is that they don't care. They're just trying to use this question to put Jesus in the hot seat. And the more I think about it, the more I see that that is a very easy thing to do. Jesus is always calling people to something higher, to a standard that's difficult and hard, to a road that is narrow, that few find, to a lifestyle that is actually... uh, just tricky and requires nuance and being fluent in what his values are. He's always inviting people into that. And all three of these groups are at a spot where they they could follow him or they could point to that incompatibility. And here's what's easy to do. When you're in that situation, put a question out before Jesus that seems impossible to answer because then it's on him. How am I supposed to do that when this, how am I supposed to uh, forgive this person when they did that? It's it's never going to happen. The wound is too deep. Do something about it. It's on you, Jesus, not on me. How, how? that's going to be very difficult. That's going to cost me so much. That is going to hurt my reputation or where I'm at or or my status in this relationship is going to be in jeopardy if I uh, display humility or honesty or if I say I'm sorry or if I do something that would that that you're calling me to do. How is that supposed to happen? Now that question gets put on on Jesus, and if he doesn't have an easy answer for it, it's not on me. But the answer wasn't really, in that scenario, the answer wasn't really ever the question. It wasn't really ever what we would want. We just want to trap him. In our world, hypocrisy like this, where we're trying to just get out of following Jesus in hard ways, in real ways, is a huge problem. And it is a huge reason why people don't really see Christians as something that is to be taken seriously. Wasn't that Brennan Manning's line, the greatest cause of atheism in our world are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny him with their lifestyle? I, uh, I wonder what would happen you know, if, if we committed to following Jesus and doing what he says and letting go of certain things, which is kind of the paradigm that he sets forth here. He says, just let go of that thing that you're holding so dearly to you. But not just let go in an arbitrary way. Let go and pick up something that is way more deep and way more important and fundamental to your identity, to who you are. Let go. So one of the first things that you can see out of the framework of his answer that that is so amazing is let go of the image that bears Caesar. Let go of that thing that has empire written all over it. 
If that's uh, another, if, if there's a simpler way of saying this, do the thing right now that will actually, in the immediate sense, cause peace uh, or, or will cause uh, to give you some sort of uh, easy action that will cause peace while you focus on the thing that is much bigger to your identity and to your uh, world. Being an image bearer. Whose image is on you. So it's time for us to ask some hard questions. Whose image are we putting on display with our life? We can ask some questions starting with them and then sort of work our way into our own sort of interaction with that. So if we had the first group, the chief priests, um, the teachers of the law, what image are they hanging on to that's got empire written all over it? Well, they're definitely hanging on to power. They are the most powerful people in this people group, and so they have a lot to lose. Now, what is power in our culture and in our situation or in your life? What does power look like? In, I know in our cultural context, power is something that is almost always just... <laughs> we know it's corrupting, but we also love it so much. What, what's things that make us look powerful or feel powerful or dominant... We like it in big picture stuff all the way down to small nuanced things. So in a big picture way, our country, nationally speaking, globally speaking, we want to fight to, to, to remain powerful. Look powerful, feel powerful, be powerful. In the way we look at sports and how we play sports and how we cheer for sports. Every time I look at a sport, it just looks like the people who are doing this just want to look powerful, you know, and like they want to victory and dominate and defeat. What about in like even smaller than that? What about like in conversations that you have or a conflict? You're somehow like opposed to somebody else. The temptation is real to be the one who has the power. This is how I use the power to control, to win, to dominate, to destroy, to separate. I mean, this is how Conflict just works for people who are being shaped in the image of power. Power is always going to whisper in our ears that this is how you're going to get peace, and this is how you're going to get freedom, but neither of those things are ever present. It's, it's a captivity. And it's one that doesn't bring order to chaos, but brings control and subjugation. And so... Yeah, I mean, you could say it's peace. Rome did. They had this whole campaign, the Pax Romana. But where's the peace? All it was was a threat towards anybody who thought in any other way. That's not peace. Has it been a while since you felt like you were displaying in any way the image of freedom and peace that people who interacted with you are feeling like that you're portraying someone that brings peace into their life. If you feel like I'm talking about power and it is something that you've been displaying, that this is the image that you're bearing, maybe today is the day where you say, I'm just going to give the image back to Caesar. I'm going to give it to him because it's not my identity. It's not something that I want shaping me. The image of the Pharisees that come by it would be one that's inundated with religion, with religiosity. It's something that is using religious actions and an image of religious actions to 
advance one's place in the world. It's a very tempting thing to do, especially for me, because I'm always trying to play the odds in life and figure out where I'm at, um, because I'm somewhat paranoid. And so I've just always felt this way of at least I'm not as bad as that person. And if I could continue to uh, update and keep up that image and that persona and that type of lifestyle, it's of course, logically, it's putting the people who aren't doing that farther and farther back behind me. And then when we think about like heaven or eternal bliss, like of course I have a better odd, uh, uh, odds of getting to, to receive that than this person, right? The problem with this though is that we are called to be a people of love and this is incompatible with love. It's, you could theoretically say, I love these people or whatever, but what ends up happening is they become a threat. Richard Beck has this beautiful line in his book, Stranger God, where he says, at the border of your tribe, humanity ends. Because we then are training ourselves to sort of, when we separate from the other person who's uh, maybe infecting or maybe going to ruin my image or ruin my... Um, my place close to God, they become uh, uh, something that we have to dehumanize and threaten and separate and cut off from. Has it been a while since you felt like you were able to be charitable, generous, and hospitable towards somebody who is different than you, who believes something different than you, who felt or, or who you felt like were just in completely different space? And are you able to love that person anymore? Or are we just making more and more enemies out of people who are different than us? Check and see what image is forming you and what image you are displaying to this world. Because a holier-than-thou, religious, um, self-righteous image continues to separate uh, people this day who are made in the image of God, who God has made us to be in one big family together with, they're not our enemy. They're not your enemy. Maybe we need to evaluate that image. And maybe time to say that empire and that kingdom is not compatible with me and I'm going to give it back. The Herodian image, um, as you could probably guess, is one of great compromise. And this is something that is just rampant in our world and in young, even the younger that you get is a temptation to be amicable and without compromise, or, or not without, fully with compromise. I don't want to rock the boat. Everybody's okay. We're all here together. Okay, we can all exist in the same place. We're all fine. And I am going to tell you th that through all kinds of ways of, of signaling to you that, that I affirm, and I'm, you know, this, we're okay. This space, though, it, though it promises security, is a very insecure place. It, it just seems like a mile wide and an inch deep, no real roots, and, and it's like always being shifted back and forth whichever way the wind's blowing and making sure that you had to manicure that image and making sure that everybody knows that you're okay with this or that cultural topic. It's exhausting. And it doesn't end in a rich, fruitful place. It ends in a place where you feel constantly threatened, like if I don't do the right thing, I'm going to be thrown out with everybody else. We work so hard to secure our place in this image, uh, but this one is very 
scary to me. Um, and if you're in that place right now, I just want to say, if you're in any of these places where these are the images that you are displaying, that you're worshiping, that you're molding and shape, that is shaping who you are, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to worship that and cling to it. You can hand that coin right back and say that this is not who I am. I can have a deep, rich, rooted identity that God has given to me as just me being a human being. I am bearing the image of God. Does anybody want that? <laughs> to receive your identity the dignity that's been given to you and bestowed upon you from the moment you were born. Nobody can take it from you. But now would be a great time to ask the question, what does God look like? There's like two billion people in the world. Is everybody just displaying the image of God in the same way? Is, it, is there any way of knowing if we're doing it in a, in a good way or a bad way? Or, or, or what's the metric that we would use to say, I am, I am receiving that, um, that challenge, that, that identity? Well, there are some verses in our Bible that sort of tell us what God looks like. Colossians 1 verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the exact representation of God. As humanity, we, we've let other images shape us and form us, going all the way back to the garden. And we've lost sight and lost our sense of what it means to look like God and display God in this world. And our world is full of darkness and, and other evil influences. And they're desperate to see what does God look like. And we can show it to them. I'd like to end with just another picture. If you want to know what God looks like, this is what he looks like. This is the image of God. If you want to know, am I displaying the image of God? To a greater and greater degree, this is what you will look like. This is power. This is our faith. This is what brings us comfort. This is what actually has provided peace. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, that, that through the bloodshed on the cross, Christ provided peace for those of us who are far and those who are near. This is not, uh, we don't have to to make an image for ourselves, to make us more lovable by God, to get us closer to God and, and, and separate us from other people. We get to just throw ourselves at his feet and say, I can see now that this is your heart for me. And we can receive this as our, this is what we put our faith in. This is our religious image. And for the Herodian, I'm not going to say that this is going to provide any type of safety or any type of uh, security. Because Jesus says, though, that you, you are called to pick up your cross and follow him. And if you are able to do that, he promises you resurrection life. If there's one message that the New Testament is telling us is that God will pour out the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead on those who die on crosses. 
So let the cross shape your conversation, your conflicts, and your uh, conflict resolution, and shape your life and your lifestyle and whoever you're interacting with. Be an image bearer. Receive your identity as somebody who's to put God on display. And be like those guys in the New Testament who say things like, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified to the world. I used to think certain things made a big deal out of, I used to think that this was a gain, but I now consider those things to be a loss. If only I might know Christ and become like him in his sufferings, I know that I will receive the resurrection power. And I believe that. That's where my faith lies, is as we pick up the cross, God will then bring his resurrection power into your life. And that is going to put him on display in the world in a powerful way. And I want to leave thinking about that, feeling amazed and inspired and feeling like, yeah, dignified. I can do this. Whose image are we going to bear? Let's let Caesar have it. All the empire stuff, all that power, all that control, all that comfort. And let's give to God what is God's. Amen? Let's pray about it. Romans chapter 8, verse, what is it, 8, 28, 29. We all know the verse, God, it will work together for good. Um, those who are called according to his purposes. What's the next verse? Those who he has uh, foreknown, he has also predestined to be made into the image of his son. Is that our destiny? To be made into the image of you, Jesus. We just want to display you and show you off to the world so that they can see that there is only one name on heaven and earth and under the earth by which men can be saved, through which we can be set free, through which we can have peace. If there's any of us who are just feeling like we've been hanging on to powerful things and patterns of power in our life, like today maybe is the day where we can say, in all humility, I am going to show power through weakness, just like you did, Jesus. If we've been trying to get closer to you through our religious image or whatever, um, trying to keep something up, we're just exhausted. And our hearts are open to you, Jesus, to just tell us who we really are and what you'd really be willing to do to bring us to those who are far, to bring us near. If there's any of us who feel like we don't have an identity because everybody else's opinion about us is shaping our identity and every other thing that's around us is something we're trying to chase after and capture, um, today give us the identity of all identities that's hidden with you, Christ. Give us something that thousands upon thousands of people have died for, for hundreds of years, that's so rich and rooted and worth it, so that we can be a people who look up to you at the end of the age and see the lamb who was slain and say, worthy, you are so worthy, you are so worth it. We're centered around you. We love you so much. Help us to do right by that as we go.